And welcome to episode 232 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. How was your week, Shane? What have you been up to? Not too much. Uh, no astronomy, unfortunately. Um, yeah, just kind of work and then come home and relax. Uh, nice. This time of the year, it's just so hard for astronomy unless we do like solar observing during the day. Um, you know, I take my dog out before bed at around 10, 30, 11 o'clock and it's still pretty bright out. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was looking last night. It was supposed to clear off a little bit, but, uh, the, uh, the mosquitoes were horrible. And, uh, yeah, like you said, it was, it was still bright at, uh, at 11 o'clock. And in fact, even, uh, you know, sort of looking at how much sort of usable, somewhat darkness we get, cause it's not completely dark. But uh, yeah, it was only going to be dark-ish for 40 minutes between like 12.30 and, you know, uh, just after one. So that's a lot to stay up for when it's really not going to be very dark much at all. No, exactly. And it's, uh, it's not as bad when we have like the planets up or something else that you can observe, you know, sort of during that time when you're waiting for the little bit of darkness to appear, but uh, we don't even have that. And uh that's the, I don't know, I guess that's the astronomer's uh, complaint here at 50 degrees north at uh, this time of the year. Uh, yeah. You know, June 21st, the longest day is uh, the shortest night and or the shortest amount of darkness, I should say. And it's yeah. uh, just not conducive to what we like to do. Yeah, the, the planets are going to be lined up on the 24th. Um, apparently be able to see um, all the major planets and Vesta. Right. And that'll be earlier in the morning, I suppose, like a, just before sunrise would be the timing. For yeah. That. Yeah. I was reading in Sky and Telescope. It said 4 a.m. local time, but I think the sun comes up at quarter after four something for us. So I'm, uh, I'm going to set the alarm and, and try to get up and, and take a peek at it. But uh, even something like that, I'm a little bit skeptical about how visible um you know, the planets might be. So yeah, I'm probably going to get up at like one o'clock or something like that and just see, see, uh, like I'd be able to see Saturn and Vesta and, uh, uh, Neptune and Jupiter, uh, at least, but I, I think like Mercury and, and maybe Venus, but I, I know Mercury will be much close to the sun and I think they'll, they'll rise almost simultaneously for us. So I'm not, uh, I'm not thinking I'll, I'll be able to get it. So Anyway, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but that is something that maybe we can see, maybe, <laughs> I don't know, but even the planets are, are a maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the good news is we'll be on the other side of this here real soon where the, the nighttime hours grow and the daytime hours reduce. So that'll be nice. And, uh, in a month we'll be back to some, uh, you know, dark sky observing, um, for the July new moon. The, the timing of the new moon is sort of favorable this, this year where the new moons are towards the end of the month. So, yeah, um, you know, the July new moon should be pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. And we'll be down in the grasslands for that. So looking forward to that too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That'll be awesome. Yeah. So, uh, I think you had ordered some stuff. Did anything uh, come in the mail for you this week or am I misremembering? Yeah. Well, no, I did order some things. I don't know if I mentioned it all either. Um, so I did order the, uh, the jumbo sky Atlas and, um, mm. it has not arrived. So when you it mean comes... that, you mean that the app inaptly named jumbo pocket Atlas? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. The jumbo pocket sky. <laughs> <Atlas>. <laughs> 
Yeah. So like I have the pocket Atlas and I, you know, it's worn out. I use it a lot. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Um, I was using mine last night actually just yeah, for, it's, uh, for, it's for yeah. yeah. So um, anyway, I thought I'd now that the uh, jumbo is back to uh, being printed again, uh, cause it seemed like you just couldn't find it. And I don't know if they stopped printing it or what the issue was, but Anyway, stock is back, so I ordered it from Sky and Telescope, and I'm hoping it comes this coming week. Uh, so yeah, when it comes, I'll let you know what I think of it. So that's on the way. Um, and then I did order my 25 millimeter Plossel for the um, uh, the little pencil board. And oh yeah, what'd you, what'd you get? What'd you get? I just went with the Teleview 25 mil. Oh, okay. um, it's uh, readily available close by, so it was basically I ordered it on a. I think a Wednesday and it came on Thursday. So. <laughs> oh, okay. You ordered it from uh, all star or somebody like that. Yeah. Or? Yeah. yeah. All star is who I ordered it from. Yeah. Um, but I really haven't had a chance to try it out. I, I was kind of torn between the 25 millimeter Plossel or the 18.2 millimeter delight. Um, the delight is a slightly narrower field of view. Um, but uh, in the long run, I chose the Plossel more so because it's like, I think less than half the weight of what the delight would be. So on this little pencil board, weight will be kind of important. Yeah, exactly. So the, the 25 millimeter Plossel gives me a true field of uh, 6.9 degrees and uh, seven times magnification. So should be a nice little finder. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And I mean, sort of speaking of the uh, delights, sir, I know I sent you the, the note on it, but uh, there was a bit of sad news from Teleview this week. Uh, Paul Delachey, uh, passed away. He was the uh, Teleview uh, employee who uh, I think he created the Ethos, uh, Delos, and the uh, Delight series of, of uh, eyepieces. So that's sort of a bit of sad news from uh, from Teleview and and for uh, yeah for those uh, close to him. Eh? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He he was quite the optician and and yeah you know designing or you know inventing the designs for those eyepieces is uh, amazing. You know the the ethos were the first 100 degree field of view eyepieces, I believe. Uh, now there's many more, but uh, the ethos are still regarded quite highly, if not, mm. you know, at the top, they're near the top. Um, and then the Delos and the delights are, uh, you know, probably about as good as it gets. If you want uh, long eye relief and, um, you know, crisp fields as well as, um, uh, what the heck? Oh, wide fields of you too. You know, like the, uh, yeah. the lights are 62 and the Delos are 70 72. or 72 or something. Yeah. 72. I think. Yeah. 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 So, you know, all highly regarded eyepieces. So yeah, it's, uh, it's quite sad that he passed, mm -hmm. um, but he leaves a, a great legacy of, of, uh, eyepieces that'll be used for decades. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, you think about like those Nagler designs going, you know, in, into into the history books and still being used today, and even the originals well regarded. And uh, you know, I'm sure the Ethos, Delight, and Delos will, um, you know, equally find their place in the uh, in the amateur's toolbox for decades to come. I'm sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, the Delights really intrigued me a lot. Um, the, uh, like I had the nine and the 15, I sold them both and I kind of regret selling the 15 a little, but, um, the nine, the nine gave me a lot of blackout issues. Mm. Although what I really, if there's one complaint that I had though, it's the, uh, the eye cup, um, adjustment, like it's, uh, you kind of unscrew the eye cup if you want to move it up and then you, you tighten it and, and that's supposed to lock it in place. But 
Um, I just couldn't get it to lock properly. And when I would even put on the caps, like, because the caps are sometimes a little sticky, so you use some force. And I would shrink, like if I had the eye cup extended, which I did on the nine to help prevent the blackouts, um, mm. I would just squeeze it down. And like, I tightened that up as tight as my grip would allow me to tighten it. And I'd still squeeze it down. And that's frustrating if you have to adjust it every single time. Was it new? Did you buy it new or was it a used eyepiece? Uh, I think I bought that one new. Uh, okay. Well, maybe it was used. I don't actually remember. I'd have yeah. to go back. Could have been some sort of variance or maybe there was some uh some mishandling if, if it was in another's hands before yeah yeah it does sound kind of strange yeah yeah it does and the 15 the 15 didn't have the same problem eh no no it didn't um and i've read online um that the focal lengths below 11 millimeters uh, oh, some different. people experience blackouts with those ones oh uh, okay yeah yeah the blackout is like a really personal thing like i know when mm. i tried the uh orion 20 millimeter lhd um, Glenn Spears had a demo version. He was willing to let go for a song. And I still, I was kicking myself for not buying because I could have bought it, tried it out for a few more times and sold it. He, I had it in my possession. Yeah. And I was like, nah, I'm not going to buy it. And I think, I think he wanted, like, whatever he wanted, it was super cheap. And uh, anyhow, um, but yeah, for me, I had blackouts. And then like reading online, like after I tried it out, it seems like... Uh, some people had success with eliminating the blackouts by buying an aftermarket uh, eye cup from from Agena, which is now out of stock, of course, like everything else. But uh, but you know, it's one of those things where the eyepiece needed a little bit of tweaking. And yeah, I just uh, yeah, I, I think I'm I think I'm slowly sidling up to maybe a, a Nagler 22. I've wanted the Nagler 22. Oh wow, sorry, I have all these. Uh, like a flock of yellow birds flying around, uh, five or six of them. Sorry. Um, yeah. So yeah, I've been thinking about the the Teleview Nagler uh, 22. I was going to buy it three years ago, right before the pandemic. Yeah. And then when the pandemic struck, and you and I bought our Takahashi's, I I spent that uh, Nagler money. So it's it's still on my to buy list. So anyway. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so you got the twenty five already, but you probably haven't even had had a shot at uh, at getting it out. So, not not at night. I I looked at it quickly during the daytime just to see you know how it felt and you know focus and all of that kind of stuff, and it was great. No issues there. Um, the only issue that I have is, and and I knew this going into it. Teleview has the safety undercuts on all of their eyepieces, and mm-hmm. the. Uh, uh, the prism that I'm using, it has like a kind of a click or twist lock on it. And it just doesn't grip the Teleview eyepieces all that well. So even when I tighten it up, it, there's just a little bit of play in there. Like the eyepiece can't drop out, but it's sort of, it, there's some movement. It can go up and down a little bit. And it's it's not an issue other than it's just annoying. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So anything else uh, coming in the post, as they say? Uh, no, just the books. Um, so yeah, excited for those. Oh, sorry. So you got the, uh, Jumbo pocket Atlas. Is there another book or? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I should have mentioned this one too. Um, so the, uh, the second one was based on what Mike showed me, uh, when we were in grasslands and that's the Wilman Bell, um, Messier guide, Messier marathon guide. And oh, okay. uh, I like it. It was, uh, looked like a fun book. So um, I thought I'd throw that in being that's available and, and like the, it's a hardcover book from Wilman Bell, um, you know, sky and telescope is publishing it now. So it just was easy to order that with the uh, jumbo pocket sky Atlas. 
but it was twenty four ninety five American for that book. So quite a quite a bargain in my opinion. Mm. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, cool, cool, very cool. Yeah, and you've got some stuff coming too. It looks like, hey, nothing too exciting. I ordered the uh, finally ordered the two inch IP adapter for the uh, comic catcher it's taken a while to kind of uh, futz through that uh that gear i think i've got some surplus <laughs> i think i've got some surplus um adapters now maybe we'll we'll do like the worst uh, actual astronomy giveaway of all time um yeah i've got some some weird adapters like uh what, what is the one that i bought that i couldn't get to work was a uh it's a female TA adapter to a female T adapter. And yeah, I couldn't, it wouldn't fit. It was 48 millimeters and I needed 42 millimeters, but it didn't really say it just said it was a T adapter. And I'd read that T adapter is T adapter. So don't worry about it. And it turned out, yeah, that didn't work. So shows you what I know. I don't know that much about uh, uh cassegrain adapters and, and even less about Newtonian uh, to Schmidt-Cassegrain adapters. So yeah, bit of a faux pas on my part, but not a big deal. I think it was like 20 bucks or something like that. So anyway, um, this one is, is the right piece to go on the adapter. I do have to allow me to use uh, two inch eyepieces. So once I get this, then uh, I'll be able to, to test it out and then maybe start thinking about getting that pet nagler. So yeah, that's kind of kind of what I'm looking at. I'm pretty, pretty excited to, uh, to get that going and, uh, really kind of flush out that comet catcher because it, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a better telescope than, uh, I thought it would be. I've really enjoyed it and, uh, uh, you know, intend to, uh, you know, make it one of my primary scopes because the tack is so nice on the planets, you know, um, that's its forte for sure. Um, you know, it's great to have is pretty much just like a dedicated planetary scope, whereas the uh, comet catcher um, is not as good on the moon and planets, but it's like a dedicated low power, super wide field uh, telescope. So, um, yeah, sort of dedicated instruments for the dedicated tasks. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I see you've got some kind of filter on your list here. Yeah, so I've been been doing some reading on on uh, cladinates, you know, in, in the past I've, and I, I have a list in the RASC observers handbook on wide field objects and uh, I've sent it out to the odd listener. If, if anybody wants it, I'm happy to send it out to you as well. Um, Cause the handbook's out of print again, um, won't go back into print here for three or four months, but um, let's see. Yeah. So one of the things I had on that list is uh, integrated flux nebula which are these high uh, galactic uh, nebulas uh -huh. uh, or nebulae that, that sit up in, uh, I think like in, uh, let's see, uh, Canis Major, Canis Minor, and some of those sort of uh, polar constellations. There's some other ones that kick around. So I had observed, I think two or three of them. There's one called the Angel and another one. And anyway, they're part of what was, what's been called the Mendel Wilson catalog, if anybody wants to look those up. Um, but, uh, I never really heard too many other people observing them. And then I was reading, uh, a couple, uh, folks from, uh, from Germany had some success using, uh, CCD filters, some of the new CMOS optimized filters. And so I've been kind of investigating those. They are not inexpensive, <laughs> so it's, it's a bit of a do, um, some of them are, are less expensive than others. So yeah, I'm gradually uh, investigating those to see. I, I think there's one or two 
that might work, but yeah, you kind of get a thread through a lot of uh, posts and these guys, I think they've been loaned them by batter or Bader. And so I know one guy was loaned uh, like a set of them and some of them seem to work better than others. So they, they continue to test them um, and they're posting a lot up until even like May and, and early part of June here. So um, I think they're about the same latitude as we are. So they're probably still, you know, in, in this perpetual twilight. And I, I kind of hope to see what they're able to do with them this summer and maybe think about getting uh, one or two of those, uh, you know, as we get into in, into late late this year, early next year, or something like that. Because uh, I'm a bit of a filter freak and, and I really do uh, like to... Uh, use them to, to hunt down some of these strange nebulae. So anyway, kind of exciting to see, you know, just how some people are applying these. And it was cool to read somebody else. Like he's, he's done way more um, visual observing on these difficult nebulae than, than I have through, uh, through some small apertures. So um, I just love reading that kind of stuff anyway. So pr- pretty cool stuff to read and uh, pretty innovative, uh, you know, way of doing it. But this guy I think was, uh, I think it was like an optical, physicist or something so this guy kind of knows what he's doing so he's able to kind of i think look at the filter spectrum a little bit better than maybe a lay person like me and and determine which of these filters might work best so he's still kind of running the experiments and i mean you got to be careful because some of these filters i mean they run into the hundreds of uh of euros pretty quick so yeah you'd want to pick them very carefully and i think there's something like I don't know. I'm going to say there's there's at least a dozen of these. So you, you, you'd burn through a lot of money pretty quick to run the experiment yourself. I think. So there's that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's nice. It's nice when somebody else does all of that, uh, you know, legwork as well as, uh, you know, spending. Um, but yeah, very interesting. Um, you know, I, I kind of stick to like the, the core filters of UHC, O3, that sort of stuff. So it's uh, always intriguing when I hear about these other filters that I've never heard of before and how they might benefit, you know, us visual observers. So that's cool. Yeah. I've got some of them. Like I've, I've bought some specialty filters from uh, like some specialty color filters from Lumicon and I have the batter IR cut that I've used for uh, some of these um, type of very, uh, you know, ethereal nebulae. Um, but they're, they're using some of the more extreme and more costly, um, uh, ones that were created for, uh, for CCD imaging. So yeah, it's, it's sort of a new, new approach. So it's kind of exciting to, uh, to see that and, and their results and under, under like decent skies, but not like super dark, like they're talking portal four limiting magnitudes between, you know, four and six kind of thing. Like they're not under extremely dark skies. So that really appealed to me because when I was looking at the uh, integrated flux nebulae, I was, uh, you know, under grasslands, darkest skies kind of situation and and barely able to see them there. I saw them at Cobau, again, uh, one of the best sites in Canada. So to hear that these guys are basically at our same latitude under less than um, ideal conditions really kind of enthused me that maybe these these filters could work really well. But But I don't know. I mean... My site here is Bortle 4, so that's appealing. Maybe it'll work well at, at my site here, but I don't know how they would work under a darker sky. So I'm just curious to see how he, how his testing bears out over the summer. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And yeah. that's on cloudy nights, did you say? Yeah, you'd have to dig for it. And like I said, I'm not, like, I get a little bit concerned. Sometimes we, we talk about stuff and maybe someone runs out and buys stuff. This is 
this is early days in this kind of uh, this kind of testing. <laughs> so, and it's and this stuff is not inexpensive. And and I know like a lot of people, for example, like like the IR cut, which I like. Um, I know a lot of people buy that. Um, I think it's like IR cut moon and sky glow or something like that. And I think a lot of um, people that have tried it aren't that happy because they're just not they're just not that into filters and that's fine. That that's just how I observe. It's not how everybody observes. And then as well, like something like the H beta, which I love, I love using an H beta filter. However, I know a lot of people um, out there just don't, don't like the H beta. They find there's, there's limited application for it because they just don't observe those nebulae as much. So uh, anyhow, um, I think that a good set to start with is, is something like the, uh, uh, Lumicon Televiewer Astronomics. I think is that what it's called? Anyway, there's there's a few different companies that uh, make very similar filters, but I think it's Astronomics with a KS, so it's not oh, the yeah, same. Yeah. Different company. Cool. All right. Um, let's see. We're getting lots of emails from people. Mm-hmm. Pretty yeah, exciting. That never, that never seems to slow down, which is awesome. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really cool. So, uh, yeah, folks, please uh, keep sending them. Um, a couple of people kind of, sometimes people write and they're like, sorry to bother you again. And I think you're, you're not bothering, you're not bothering us, are they? No, no, this is one of the parts you and I both, I think, really uh, enjoy. Like we have a lot of fun recording the podcast, but then all week we get to, to interact with listeners and hear about their journeys and observations, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, sometimes I think that people maybe think that maybe we're more experienced. I mean, we're we're like, I think that we're kind of, we sit like in a nice spot in the experience uh, realm. Mm-hmm. Like there's, I know there's, there's people that listen to this podcast that are, that are like at least way more experienced than me, Shane, uh, maybe you as well. Yep. And, uh, and then we have people that aren't as experienced. Like we have a, a broad spectrum of, of folks that are, uh, uh, that are listening. So, um, yeah, we're not like the ultimate experts. And I think like you were saying to, uh, to one individual or multiple individuals probably by now that, uh, you know, we don't necessarily have experience with, uh, with all this equipment and, uh, yeah, we kind of do a lot of reading before we buy our gear and then we buy it and give, give our opinions. And, uh, you and I, I find we tend to agree on what we like and don't like, but then sometimes what, what like me, you and Mike say, for example, might we might really love something or really enjoy using it. And then you might read online that, uh, that, that people don't like it for whatever reason. So, um, you know, as they always say, your mileage may vary in, in our recommendations. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, when we get, uh, emails, so sometimes I edit them a little bit. Um, one thing is to remove like personal information and the other is to like kind of structure things to put a fine point on an item somebody has raised. So I think sometimes people will, they'll write something and they'll put a lot of detail in it. It's awesome. Um, and it, it might be stuff that we've kind of been corresponding with that individual on. And so it might be hard to kind of en- encapsulate it like in our, in our reading of the person's email. So if it's difficult like that, I might, I might take it out. Like it might be hard to explain. And then the other thing is I find often in, um, in emails from listeners, there'll be like a really good nugget of information that, um, that we just haven't really covered before, or it's something that I see coming up again and again. And so we had a really good example of this, um, from Ant, uh, I think who, who observes, and correct me if I'm wrong, Shane, I believe he observes down in, uh, Australia. Cause he was talking to yes. observer Karina. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Australian uh, ant, I think, is how he usually signs his emails. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to make sure because I, you know, um, anyway, didn't didn't write it down. And then, um, yeah, we've had uh, lots of communication from. But he had he, and we'll read his email here in a second if if you're good for it. But he yeah. was talking about uh, the diagonals a little bit. So. Uh, anyhow, did you uh, did you want to take a read of this one, and then we can kind of discuss uh, diagonals a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, uh, Ant writes, uh, "Hey, gents, it's been a while since I emailed you. Got busy with work, and unfortunately, I need to work to buy food and fund my astronomy hobby." Yeah, I'm strange like that too. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so he goes on to say, "My big news: uh, I picked up uh, my ED80 refractor a couple weeks ago." Then it took me another week or so to negotiate a deal on a secondhand, barely used AZ GTI. Um, then it took me the best part of a week to find a new viewing site. Uh, my last site was a boat ramp car park that has no lights and doesn't get used at night. But the last time I went there, it was a Saturday night. Over the first uh, hour, four cars turned up at different times with young people in various states, states of drunkenness and druggedness. Uh, it turns out some of the locals know this otherwise quiet and hidden spot and use it to do what they don't want to do in front of their parents. Uh, honestly, I don't begrudge them. Uh, they are youth. <laughs> uh, the real problem uh, was that the car park is a loop and every car movement results in me being blinded by the headlights. Uh, so it's the headlights that made me internally shake my grandpa fist and yell, get off my lawn. <laughs> uh, I left after an hour and decided I needed a new viewing site. Uh, so last night, tried another location, and it turned out to be good enough. Uh, it's a road with no lights leading to a national park, and the park is closed at night. Uh, since there is no, uh, no through access, there's no traffic. I parked by the side of the road and got first light with the ED80. I was there for four hours and didn't see a single car or drunk, which was brilliant. Uh, the ED80 is a nice scope, but as can be expected on first run, there were uh, many little issues. Uh, so number one... Uh, we're near full moon, so the moonlight washed out a good part of the sky, making observing difficult. Uh, I knew this would be an issue, but wanted to give the new scope a test drive anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, what was disappointing is that the moon last night was in the constellation Libra, which is close to Crux, Centaurus, and Carina, which are the constellations that I'm currently studying with telescopes, so I had to find other targets. I had not planned for this, so I had no viewing list. Um, the second point here, the AZ G GTI took around 10 minutes to align and right at the moment of completing alignment, my phone lost the Wi-Fi signal and I had to start again. So second time around, the AZ GTI took around 10 minutes to align and right at the moment of completing alignment, my phone lost the Wi-Fi signal and I had to start again. Third time, I decided to do a two-star alignment instead of three-star and right at the moment of completing alignment, my phone lost the Wi-Fi signal again, and I had to start uh, again. Uh, so let me just let me just hop in there because I wanted because I I had the same problem with my Easy GTI, and I and I wrote Amp back, um, and I just wanted to make people aware. So there's actually different Wi-Fi settings um, in there. Now I don't have the instructions. Um, but there's excellent instructions on cloudy nights. If you if you um, uh, Google cloudy nights, AZ GTI, um, 
Wi-Fi issues, then you can find those. And so what I did, um, like I exact same issue, I was trying to do whatever I was trying to do. And, and it didn't even matter. Like I wasn't trying to do alignment. I was just trying to use it. And uh, just for tracking purposes, and the Wi-Fi was dropping, and it was just a pain, you know. Like I just wanted to center an object, but my phone couldn't connect to the uh, to the AZGTI. Anyway, so it's it's a pretty simple solution. Once you find out how to change the channel on there, then you just change it, and that was it. I only ever had to do it once, and it worked perfectly ever since. Oh well, wow. well, hopefully that's the simple fix here. Um, that would, yeah, that that doesn't sound too bad at all. No. And the other thing is, is that um, it seemed like it was taking him a while to, to do the alignment. And I've, I've gone and tried to do that myself and I've done it successfully and it's, it's fine. Um, the, the main trick with the alignment and whatever you're doing with the AZGTI, the thing that I found is the most beneficial is to make sure that that mount is level. If that mount is level and, uh, and then you make sure you got the, I think like you have to point it north somehow or whatever. Um, as long as it's level, it works amazingly well. If it's not level, it's a little bit of a, like it just doesn't work nearly as well. The, the main oh, okay. thing I found is, is that it needs to be level. And then the way that I use it is I don't bother. And I mean, you've seen this as well. I don't, I don't really bother with the alignment. I use the point and track feature on the app. And that as long as it's level, it works beautifully. Yeah. And, and really for any uh, tracking mount, being level is essential. Like the, the intelligence in the mount to track and find things ba is kind of based on the assumption that you have a, have it all leveled up. Um, so mm -hmm. if you're not level, uh, for sure the tracking will be a real issue. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, go go ahead. Keep uh, sure. reading. Um, so he goes on to say, my issue is that I'm finding it difficult to jump the mental hurdle of paying five to six hundred dollars for a decent diagonal. Uh, when I spent $600 on the scope. Uh, the $600 for the scope is cheap for Australia, trust me. Uh, have you got any advice here? Is it reasonable or expected that a diagonal should cost nearly as much as the telescope? Or would an uh, Explore Scientific dielectric for $190 be sufficient uh, for my, or to do my ED80 justice? Uh, all my best uh, to both of you. I hope you're well. Your podcast is much appreciated, especially since it keeps me from other frivolous guilty pleasures like watching the YouTube videos of flat earthers and sovereign citizens. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, we won't make any comments on that. Um, yeah. Uh, so, like, what what do you think? Because this is this is a, a bit of a rabbit hole. I think we've all gone down, and he is is at least the second, possibly the third person in the past month to write us with a similar question about the diagonals. So, uh, so what's your angle on this? Well, <laughs> my my angle on the diagonal. <laughs> um, okay, so. I'll go on a little bit of a rant, not a rant, but just bear with me here. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll hold tight. Yeah. Um, so when you're viewing through a telescope, there's three parts, especially a refractor or a Cassegrain, you know, there's three parts that are part of your light path. You know, there's the telescope objective, there is a diagonal, and then there's an eyepiece. Now, they're all part of a system. And if any of those parts are inadequate, um, it, it, it sort of chokes the performance of the overall system. So, you know, if you've got an outstanding telescope and an outstanding eyepiece, but a, a diagonal, that's not very good. 
your experience is just not going to be very good. You're sort of as strong as the weakest link. Um, mm-hmm. So I do believe that, you know, investing in a, a good diagonal, if you have a, a good refractor um, and, and you want the best views possible, investing in a good diagonal is, is super important. Um, now, you know, I think that there's a, a very small gain from a really good diagonal to a great diagonal. Yeah. Um, you know, if you read on cloudy nights and, uh, you know, Bill Paoloni did that wonderful review of uh, diagonals um, uh, and, and I'm just trying to think here. I think he did two reviews actually. One was like a prism versus diagonal thing. Um, and then he talked a lot about the Bader two inch uh, BBSH uh, super mirror diagonal, um, and how good it is. Now, you know, if you consider that that beta might be the, the top one, uh, that's out there, it's super expensive. It's six or $700 Canadian. Um, and you know, it's regarded as the best, but it's probably only going to show that gain on the best of nights, similar to how we talk about like the, you know, like the, say the, the top end orthoscopic eyepieces, they probably really only separate themselves on those extremely rare nights when the seeing is outstanding and, you know, all of those conditions line up. Mm-hmm. So I think you can get away with a really good dielectric diagonal, like the ES one that he referenced, I'm sure will be fantastic and it'll be amazing. Yeah. And on most nights beside that beta uh, diagonal, you'd never know a difference likely. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm speculating. I've never done the comparison myself, but a lot of this stuff, you know, the, the jump from good to great is only noticeable on the best of nights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll make a bit of a, I'll tell tell people what I did. Um, you know, I, I, I believe in getting a good quality diagonal and, uh, like you said, I think the batter, um, has, has quite a few, uh, followers saying that it, it probably is about the best. Um, it certainly is among the most expensive. Um, so we'll kind of, just sort of sidebar that for a while. Um, so it's a bit out of my, you know, just out of my comfort level as well. So I'm with Anton on this. Um, but I've got a couple of really good diagonals. And the last one I picked up, I think you remember, Shane, is uh, there was a company going out of business and they had uh, a bunch of the Lumicon um, enhanced. They had an enhanced and a semi-enhanced ones at 99 or 98%, ones at 96 or 97%. And uh, I picked up two of those for like i think 150 dollars canadian or something like that because a lot of the time companies uh stores will buy these really expensive two inch diagonals and have them on the shelf for for an extended period of time they're essentially unused you know they might have a bit of dust in them but these ones i got did not even though who knows how long the store had them kicking around they were in sealed plastic bags and boxes they're high-end diagonals so um, they're really not going to be impacted by by sitting around for for decades anyway. So it just doesn't matter. And uh, that's that's kind of my recommendation. If somebody's really stuck on on sort of getting the best of the best, you can kind of wait wait it out, and eventually there'll be a telescope store somewhere near you that uh, that will have gotten in some really expensive diagonals that that they just can't move, and uh, and you can pick them up pretty cheap. And then and then the other thing I did is sort of in between. And this just just sort of was coincidental. Is that uh, as as I was thinking about getting a higher end diagonal, not wanting to spend the money, you, you actually end up with a couple extra or an extra um, Takahashi prism. Yeah. And so, so I picked that up off you for for dedicated planetary observing. So then when I am doing planets, um, and I've got that Takahashi 
um, Prism Diagonal, which was, I don't know whether you gave me a, a banger of a deal on it or what, but I don't think they're crazy expensive to start because this is just the one and a quarter inch, right? Yeah, like I think brand new Canadian dollars is maybe 260 or something like that. Like it's probably yeah. one of the best bargains out there because it's a great performer too. Yeah. And you see them all the time used for sometimes about half that price. Yeah. Uh, people get them, they don't use them, and then they turn them around and sell them. And uh, and yeah, so uh, I bought it off you and it was, uh, again, a, a really good price, uh, you know, under 200 bucks or whatever it was. And uh, and so that's like a dedicated planetary one I just use for planets. So then I'm not putting miles on my uh, two-inch eyepieces or two-inch uh, diagonals for, uh, for deep sky observing. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's, that's one of the ways uh, that you can do it. So, you know, it just, it just depends. I, I think if, if somebody is still somewhat new to astronomy, I think that, uh, you can get a lot of mileage out of simply buying, um, better eyepieces. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> eyepieces, I think probably have the biggest impact, um, on your views because of the fields of view and sharpness and other factors yeah. that go into it. So I think that those have the largest influence and yeah, if you, if you had to channel budget somewhere, that's probably your best place. Yeah. And I've seen, I've seen that and some other comments, uh, people looking for other accessories, um, that are pretty expensive, like more expensive than, you know, really, you know, high-end two-inch Teleview Nagler's or, or in that ethos price range. And I think, well, if, if you're looking to spend that kind of money, you know, go for a, a, the decent, like Explore Scientific or somebody like that that's selling the dielectric or, or whatever you want to get um, in that decent range and that decent realm is going to be great. And then go and uh, and get get a good eyepiece that that's you know in a range that uh, that's going to see a lot of miles on on your telescope. I, I think that's what I would recommend doing. I, I don't know where you sit on that recommendation, though, Shane. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I can get behind that for sure. Yeah, so I, I think that just about covers our our diagonal uh, chat. I did want to have it because, like I said, I think that's the third one we had in a month where where I think we've talked about diagonals before and. Uh, I think we just maybe needed to make it a little clear where we actually uh, sat on that sort of personally in our, in our own observing. I mean, sure, if somebody wants to go out and drop the money and get that Takahashi two-inch uh, diagonal, uh, you know, that, that's fine. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But if people are really hemming and hawing over it and uh, and they're wondering, like, how much of a performance are they going to see? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how much performance you'll actually see. Um, I think that would be a little bit further down the road of, of replacement items. I, I'd like to get the batter uh, two-inch, um, you know, high-end uh, diagonal at some point. I think I've used them. I think they are really awesome. But uh, but yeah, I, you know, it, it's far down the list for me. I, I have a lot of other things I'd like to do. And when I'm out under the sky, I just don't even think about it. I don't know about you. Yeah. Again, like, um, unless you're doing a B comparisons, you're probably not really going to notice it, but, um, mm -hmm. eh, I don't know uh, if, if you can afford it, uh, go for the, the top end. You know, I'm a big believer in, you know, cry, pay, pay once or buy once, cry once and enjoy for the rest of your life sort of thing. And, and when you go with that higher end stuff, it should probably last you a lifetime if you take care of it. Oh, and I'm just going to give a quick rundown on the diagonals that in my research and my experience um, work exceptionally well and tend to be um, sort of middle of the road price wise and can often be found used for good prices. Um, those include like the two inch uh, Teleview Everbright, 
um, the mm-hmm. astrophysics uh, two-inch diagonal and the Lumicon two-inch diagonal as well. I actually believe they all use the same mirrors, or at least they did at one point in time. And these are diagonals that uh, are widely available. And from my understanding, they're really set well in the um, in the actual cast settings of the diagonal itself. So they're going to stay in alignment. So buying them used isn't a big deal. They're not susceptible to scratches or other wear and tear. So you can feel pretty confident buying them used. And then, um, yeah, they're widely available. A lot of people have had them. People upgrade these things over the years, but there's certainly nothing wrong with a five or six-year-old astrophysics Teleview or Lumicon two-inch dielectric diagonal. Uh, You get it, blow the dust off, and you're off to the races. Um, You might even be able to pick one up for the cost of, uh, you know, of the most inexpensive, uh, you know, new dielectric diagonal, uh, you know, and and then, you know, it's good. You've you've got some good gear there. I have no reservations in making that recommendation. Yeah, no, that's pretty solid for sure. Got a short email here from uh, our friend Dave Chapman, sometimes sometimes uh, guest star of our of our podcast. Yeah. Um, let's see. Dave writes. Um, in case you have not heard, on Monday, June thirteenth, the International Astronomical Union added the name Kejimukujik to minor planet asteroid four nine seven five nine three. Here is the citation: four nine seven nine. 497593 Kejimukujik equals 2006 JU69. Discovery was made on Mauna Kea. Um, and then the citation goes on to read Kejimukujik National Park and Historic Site is an area of natural beauty and historical significance in Nova Scotia, Canada. The indigenous Mi'kmaq people consider Kejimukujik to be a sacred ancestral place. The Royal Astronomical Society of Canada declared Kejimukujik to be a uh, dark sky preserve in 2010. Uh, nomination was su- suggested by Dave Chapman, Kathy LeBlanc from Acadia First Nation, uh, Roy Bishop, who's a uh, famous uh, RESC person, uh, James Hesser, uh, also a famous RESC person, Peter Jedeke as well, um, and submitted to the IU by Professor Paul Wiegert of uh, University of Western Ontario. Minor planet Kejimukujik is an irregular two-kilometer rocky uh, object in the asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter currently appearing in the constellation Pisces. It is only observable in professional telescopes. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Very neat. Yeah. I love that kind of stuff. Um, I think it's awesome. I love, I love, uh, uh what Dave's doing there. It's super. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Very neat. He's done a lot of uh, work with the dark sky preserves. So yeah, super great. He goes down there quite a bit with, uh, with Kathy and they do uh, pretty good outreach and have created some publications that super neat. I note that the park is larger than the asteroid. (laughs) (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) All right. Um, Phil sent us some, some sketches. I thought it was kind of, kind of neat. What did you think? And I I didn't put his, his whole thread in here, but he's using um, some uh, pastel uh, white and, uh, and, and black, um, uh, you know, write, writing devices, pastels to, uh, to do some sketching. He, he sent us a great sketch of M57. I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. I thought it was great. Um, like kind of next level sketching with the pastels going on there. It was super cool. Um, yeah, great work. I, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty neat. I guess like he's drawing, like I was trying to ask him, I think he thought I knew more about using these these pastels than than i do i don't know very much about using them at all so i was like asking him questions and he was like oh is it because i did this you know funny thing or that weird thing i'm like no i just i really don't know how to use them just tell me what you're doing <laughs> yeah yeah so, 
yeah, it's all it's all good. But uh, yeah, I gotta I gotta give it a try. Yeah, I haven't bought I haven't bought the uh, pastels or or the paper yet. I you know that's that's going to be uh, later in the summer kind of thing. And uh, yeah, we'll give it give it a whirl. I, you know, it it just hasn't uh, bubbled up yet. Just uh, have some other stuff on the go. Um, had an email from uh, from Stefan. Did uh, did you want me to read it or did you want to read it? How do you want to do this one? Um, yeah, go for it. You're you're All on right. a roll. Why don't you just continue? All right, dear Shannon, Chris, first, I'd like to thank you for the terrific and engaging visual astronomy podcast, which I follow regularly. I particularly like your discussion on equipment, uh, and also thoroughly enjoyed the two episodes with Don McFoles. I've started listening to his podcast. As a result, he says, "What an inspirational man." I agree. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes on, Stefan goes on to say, uh, I'm purely a visual astronomer based in East Anglia, United Kingdom, and enjoy recently dark skies under Bordeaux 4 from our countryside location. Uh, there are only one, there's only one street lighter in our village, and it goes off at 11 o'clock in the evening. Wow, that's perfect. Yeah, it is. That's ideal for astronomy. Then he goes on to say, one of our neighbors just installed a neon sign on their man cave shed, which stays on all night. <laughs> that's lovely. Nice. Excellent. Very, very nice. All right. He goes on to say, and I like this. I love quality optics and I've been fortunate to accumulate uh, some amazing eyepieces such as the uh, Dr. Noblux 12 and millimeter, which I have, and he has the Teleview Apollo 11. And I really wanted to find out how they compare. I think I asked him, I don't know that he, that he wrote back yet. Uh, I would look forward to a comparison between the Noblux and the Teleview Apollo. Um, he also has the 31 millimeter angler and the 22 millimeter angler and uses them in a Teleview 101 refractor as well as a nine and a quarter inch Celestron Schmitt and his 18 inch F4 DOP. That is a nice set of gear. I think that's just about perfect. <laughs> mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, there's no holes there. Yeah, you could be pretty happy. To have that uh, that set of uh, eyepieces and those three instruments, I think you're all good. All right, but then he says he just now is looking for some observing buddies to share experiences with, and sadly has not come across anyone yet so far. And uh, he's thinking about going to a Star Party in autumn, hopefully to to meet some folks. I think I think that's a great idea. You know, there should be lots of uh, observing folks uh, somewhat nearby in the UK. I, it, it seems like it's uh, astronomy is super popular there, and and the UK really isn't isn't that large in comparison even to our, our province. Yeah, yeah, and we have a lot of listeners from the UK, and and a number of them correspond with us over email too. So, I think that's a great idea, though, to go to a uh, star party and you'll certainly meet some astronomers and maybe even link up with some ones that are, you know, in close proximity so that after the star party, you can, uh, arrange some observing sessions. Cause you know, I, I do observe by myself, but whenever I observe Chris with you or with Mike or with others, um, I usually enjoy it a hundred times more. It's just, you know, it's fun to have the conversations, but it's also really neat when you have multiple telescopes with different objects, because you probably double or triple the amount of stuff you can see in a night because other people are locating things and you just walk up, have a quick view and, you know, there you go. You, you've now observed whatever they were looking at. Yeah. Or then like you kind of, yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's cool. And then like, like the other week when Mike was out here, you know, and I think this is probably about the best example I, I can think of is I had my little five and a half inch uh, telescope running and I was looking for a uh, comic K2 uh, pan stars, 27 C 2017 K2 pan stars. And, um, uh, 
I kind of thought I sort of found it. I was really tired, but I had brought the chart out and I showed the chart to Mike and, and Mike is actually a fair bit better at finding stuff than I am. And so, uh, and he has a 12 inch telescope too, which helps, but he, but he also is really uh, quite good at finding stuff. Uh, he, he's one of the best people I've seen. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, and so, uh, yeah, I had sort of it on my list. Mike didn't even have the comment on his list to observe that night. Um, but I, I had sort of uh, earmarked uh, the Sky and Telescope magazine with it because I had uh, thought we should try to observe it um, and, and had pulled it out. So, so we were able to observe it in his 12 inch because he was able to, to get it hunted down. It was, you know, a little bit fainter uh, than I was able to, to confirm in the five and a half inch. So we spent a long time observing the comet that night, but even though I had it on my list to observe, I wasn't going to get an observation or a good observation of it that night for whatever reason, just uh, my telescope was probably a little bit small and I was a little bit too tired to actually find it. And then, uh, you know, Mike didn't even have it on his list, even though he was quickly able to find it and uh, were able to make a good observation of it. So kind of working together, um, you know, it was just a, a tremendous um, observing experience, you know, and, and that right there, I think in, in essence is, uh, is what makes it a lot of fun to, to observe with other people. You end up, you end up seeing stuff that either you couldn't find or weren't going to find. And, uh, and that's always, always a big thrill. Yeah, no, that's a great point um, for sure. Because sometimes, uh, sometimes other people are just great at finding things, and that that makes the night a lot better. Yeah, one thing he did. This is amazing. Is we we've had a few emails, way more than I ever would have thought on the uh, on the lens cap issues with the Pentax XLs and XWs, and he came up with a super simple solution which is to use the old uh, film canister caps from the Fujifilm Astia, A-S-T-I-A, 35 millimeter film canisters. Yeah, it was uh, very inventive and I never would have thought of that, but it looks like it's a great solution. Yeah, so if people are looking for it, you might be able to find some of the old canisters. Like you, you might have some or know somebody uh, who does and uh, yeah, you might be able to to get some of those. And so uh, anyway, good luck hunting those down. Um, let's see. Anyway, he says, uh, keep up the great work and I look forward to your upcoming shows and hopefully some additional guests. Yeah. So we're looking forward to having some more guests on. Uh, he says, best wishes from 52 degrees North, uh, Stefan. Yeah. Very, very good. Cool. All right. Um, I think we're getting to about uh, time here. I think that covers uh, many of the emails, not not all of the emails that we've had uh, in the past week. Um, and we've got some other side conversations with folks that um, we're, we're chatting about stuff with, and we're going to touch on a couple of those emails uh, in the next episode. But did you have anything else to add to, to this, our 232nd episode of Actual Astronomy, Shane? That is all for me, Chris. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We're always excited to get your observing emails. And, uh, yeah, we, we, we can be uh, reached at actualastronomy at gmail.com. We're also on Patreon. and appreciate any support people are willing to provide us there. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.